0: There are probably a number of verses that would have worked in the section from Romans this morning that I think all of us would do well to apply, to put into practice, to reflect on, to think about. But one of those ones that that stood out for me would be the last part of verse 2. And we boast or we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It sounds like one of those, those passages that, that you could see putting up on, on wall art somewhere in your home or up on your refrigerator. It sounds really religious, really churchy, like uh, one of those, well, Bible verses, right? And you could hear others spout it off or speak of, of how much they appreciate it. But if we're honest, we, we might look at a verse like that and say, yes, it sounds really nice. What exactly is it saying? We boast, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The concept of God's glory comes up again and again in Scripture. And yet, as you read through Paul, and, and anywhere in Scripture really, but especially Paul, he is, he is no stranger to theological jargon. He uses deep, heavy, significant theological terms that, that carry a lot of weight to them and significance, but we don't really understand or, or pull them apart and stop and reflect on what they mean then maybe they kind of just go in one ear or out the other, or we don't want to admit that I'm not actually sure what that verse says. So maybe a different way to, to reflect or think on that verse, that section of what Paul is saying, is, is as the, the, the version in your, your service folder already said, that word boast in my older version, I guess, is replaced with rejoice. We rejoice in what we might say that the hope or the confidence of God's, Godness. What is his glory? God's godness. God's showing up. We rejoice in the confidence that we have God is going to show up to be the God that we know him to be. Where does this confidence or this hope come from? Well, Paul started out this section right at the beginning of chapter 5. With the therefore, and when you come across the therefore, you ask what it's there for. Paul writes, "Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand." It sounds like another one of those really churchy, biblically sections that, that is rich with theological jargon. But what is Paul actually saying? Well, if we want to really appreciate why we can rejoice in the confidence of God's godness, the answer to that, therefore, is because Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ has declared us not guilty of our sins. God, through the work of Jesus, has declared us not guilty of of our sins, and through faith in him, because we believe that, we now are at perfect peace with God. And we stand each and every day as the recipients of God's fiercely devoted, unconditional love for us. Now that's something we can hang our hat on. It's because God has made that to be the case that we can rejoice in the confidence of God's godness. That he will show up, that he will continue to be God. And that not only gives us a, a confidence, maybe we'd call it a spiritual swagger, to, to go out, uh, about through this life day in and day out, but it also enables us to, to thrive, to maximize, to live life to the fullest with that confidence of who we are and whose we are in Christ Jesus. Yes, even in the face of suffering. You knew the word was going to come up. Because either you looked at the, the theme for the sermon or you were paying attention to the second reading and you knew suffering was in there, so of course we are going to talk about suffering this morning. And it's okay for us to acknowledge that suffering is probably not on anybody's top ten list of favorite subjects or topics to either have to listen to or deal with. But you either, as I've said before, are going through some season of suffering or you will be if you aren't. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And nowhere in Scripture does God say that you have to be excited about suffering. Paul doesn't write that you have to love it. There is not something wrong with you spiritually. You're not somehow less spiritually mature if you don't get all warm and fuzzy at the prospect of suffering. However, what God does want us to realize is that although we don't have to enjoy it, we also don't have to loathe it because... God promises good through suffering. God gives us the assurance that even in the face of suffering, he is able to bring good out of it. How does he do that? Well, he fills us with hope. And he assures us of that hope this morning. Hope that is ours because of Jesus' suffering for us, and hope that is ours because of our suffering. This this confidence that we have, this this in the face of suffering. I don't know if it resonates with you to think of the good that God is going to work as the athlete, especially at a professional level, who competes and trains for years, going through rigorous training. And they have a little bit of an off-season, but then they're right back into the training and the diet and, and the rigor uh, of everything to get ready for the season. Why do they put themselves through that hardship, through that suffering and difficulty? Because they hope that at the end of the season, it's going to be worth it when they hold up the trophy. That's why they do it. And if they've ever had the privilege of doing that, they'll go through all the suffering again. And in fact, they do the very next season. That's how God promises to to bring about blessing through suffering. To give us the assurance that he will work good through it. And as I mentioned, that that confidence of the hope that we have in suffering comes first through Jesus' suffering. When you think of all the ways that God could bring good out of suffering, there is no greater example of that than the one that Paul started out this section talking about and then wraps up the section talking about Jesus' suffering and crucifixion. It's easy for us because we we so easily tie those together when we talk about the confidence that we have of where we stand with God and why we're going to heaven. Why? Because Jesus suffered and died for me. But how often do you stop and really think the degree, the depth of suffering that Jesus experienced for you? And here's what makes it especially remarkable is that that was the absolute, absolute most intense suffering that anybody is ever going to experience on this one end of the spectrum. Jesus experienced it being forsaken, being turned away from his father, and experiencing hell itself. And yet, through that extreme act of suffering, God brought about the single greatest good that anybody is ever going to experience. So if God is able to bring out the the greatest good through the most extreme suffering, doesn't that give us the confidence that he's also able to do the same in any season of suffering that we might be enduring? Paul kind of went into, he delved into that that suffering of our Savior in the end of this section from chapter 5, looking at verses 6 and following. He said, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we can talk and and try to just imagine the suffering that Jesus endured, being forsaken, being condemned, being damned in our place. And then to amplify that suffering was to consider who he did it for. Not good people. Not people who deserved it. But the ungodly and sinners. So I want you to ponder that the next time that you are inclined to try and diminish your sin. Before God or anybody else. To downplay it or to offer those apologies that are not really much of an apology at all. To think that your sin isn't really so sinful. And you all know we're experts at this, justifying it, rationalizing it, excusing it. I want you to really think through what we are, what we are saying when we make those efforts. It's kind, of, it's kind of a little bit like everybody's favorite chore of, of having to clean out the refrigerator. Whoever has that enviable task of slowly peeling off the lids from each item to try and remember what it was or how long it's been there. See, we think of our sin as that one object that has been in there maybe a, a day or two and you take the lid off of it and you can smell, it's not fresh, but it's still edible. You can still take it for lunch tomorrow at work. It'll still, it'll still work just fine. But as you keep working your way through the fridge, you eventually come to the stuff that got shoved to the back. And you take the lid off of that container and instantly the sight and the smell that, that brings about the gag reflex tells you this is going down the drain, this is getting pitched, it's spoiled, it's, it's past due. That, we tend to think, is everybody else's sin, right? I'm okay with my sin just being kind of the slightly less than fresh sin, but nowhere near that funky smell of everybody else's sin, When you think of your sin that way, there's only one conclusion that you can draw. That Jesus didn't really need to come for you. And if Jesus didn't need to come for you, then that is the most terrifying place anybody can be. Because what it means is that we we are saying to God that I feel confident to stand before you on the last day And vouch for my record before you. I will be my own personal defense attorney and I will account for my record before you. The only problem with that is yes, we are being called to account, but guess who is going to be right there with his endless volumes after volume that kept track of every one of our sins? The accuser, Satan. And when faced with that reality of our sin, God will have no choice but to condemn those who didn't think they deserved it. Because Jesus did not come to die for the slightly sinful. Jesus did not come to die for those who are sometimes godly. Jesus came for ungodly sinners. And that's good company to be in. Because it realizes why I needed Jesus, And so there's no sense in trying to deceive ourselves or anybody else but, but to actually confess that sin before God, which is why we do that every time we gather corporately in God's house with confession and absolution. It is to be very aware that I am ungodly, that I am a sinner on my own apart from Jesus, but not so that we would spend the next hour wallowing in that guilt or feeling horrible about it, but so that it would set the tone for the hope that God longs to fill us with. The hope in which we now stand. Hope that serves us each and every day for the rest of our lives. A hope that is ours because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, you might be struggling to to make the connection, but what does that hope have to do when I am going through this season of suffering? Well, everything. Because it means that, that your suffering is going to end. It will be limited. Because Jesus suffered the eternal suffering for us. Any suffering we have this side of heaven will come to an end. Maybe, maybe God will, will end it temporarily here. Maybe not. But eventually it will come to an end. And it doesn't matter what kind of suffering it is. Financial suffering because of relationships, because of health, work-related, sometimes because of the consequences or choices of my own sins and and what I have to deal with as a result of that. doesn't matter what it is, it is going to come to an end. We have that hope and that assurance because Jesus suffered the ultimate suffering for us. And so we always have that hope to look ahead, to look forward, to know this is temporary. That's the confidence, the hope that we have in Jesus' suffering for us. But admittedly, that can be a struggle for us in the here and now of suffering. It's one thing to look ahead to the future when that suffering will be done or to look ahead when I'm home in heaven and I don't have to worry about suffering. But right here, right now when I'm hurting, when I'm experiencing chronic uh, physical or emotional pain, what about that suffering? Well, God wants to heap the hope up for each of us It says not only do we have hope in Jesus' suffering, but he promises us hope in our suffering as well. Listen to how Paul conveyed that thought in verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings or rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There it is again. Whether it's the translation glory or rejoice, which is probably found in in a a lot more common, very reliable translations for that, uh, that word, to rejoice in our sufferings, you still might be saying, okay, boast or rejoice in sufferings doesn't matter. It's Paul off his rocker to be able to say, who's going to rejoice in their sufferings? But he explains why. Because in our suffering, God is going to bring good. And he spelled out that, how he was going to do that, the progression of that. Perseverance, character, hope. Let's reflect a little bit on, on perseverance. This one might actually be difficult for us to see because of the way that our memory tends to work. We, we tend to filter out a lot of the, the bad things in the past. That's why we always speak of the glory days or we have nostalgic memory, memories for this event or that because we, we don't remember all of the, the bad things. But if you could, if your memory was a little bit more reliable, you could go back and you would realize, whoa, that's right, that was a significant challenge. That was no small amount of suffering that I had to go through at that time. And if you could remember, at that time, looking ahead to that suffering, at the beginning of it, that you were thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to get through this. I can't handle this. It's too big, it's too much. And yet, here you are. Why? Because God delivered you through that. God granted you the perseverance, the endurance, the strength to get through that season of suffering, which at the time, you would have never seen how it was going to play out. But as I said, here you are. And the result of that happening again and again throughout our lives, as Paul says, is that perseverance produces character. Well, what, what is character? Character. It's the kind of stuff that God shapes us into to being. It's, it's suffering that God uses to chisel away the character flaws that we have and replace them with a, a faithfulness and a fearlessness as God leads us to lean more and more on him. And it's the character that allows us to see that I am not the same Christian that I used to be in the past. How is that? Why is that? Yes, God has fanned my faith into flame through his word and sacraments, but he has also shaped me through suffering. And as he has brought me through to persevere, that has built character. And when I look at the character, when I see how he actually has changed me, how he has has given me his outpouring of spiritual gifts to deal with and process suffering, that fills me with hope. Because I actually can look at me and see what God has done in me to keep his promises. And it comes full circle. If he keeps his promises, then through all of that, my hope is fortified. Think of of the promises that God gives us today and the suffering that you are going to face and the hope that he wants you to have through it. I'm reminded, I don't know who's credited with with saying it, but a phrase that that I think has a, a lot of meaning and application to Paul's words here. God never wastes suffering. Hear that again. God never wastes suffering. So contrary to what we're inclined to believe, suffering is not some inconvenience or temporary pain or difficulty that you just have to get through and then things will be great again, God actually uses suffering to shape you, to fill you with hope, to bring good out of that suffering. So, dear friends, the next time, or if it's even right now, as you endure suffering, think of it differently. Maybe the first thing that you pray for is not, Lord, remove this suffering. That's the only answer. That's the only solution. Take it away from me. But rather, Lord, use this suffering to fill me more and more with hope. Hope that is mine through Jesus' suffering. Hope that is mine through my own suffering and the good that you'll work through it. Amen.